In 2017, I published a short book called Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology. In it, I interwove personal narrative and cultural analysis to explore what it means to be a creep. I drew on my own personal experiences growing up gay in the Deep South, where I was often made to feel that I was a creepy kid in the 1980s. But I also looked at examples from literature and popular film and media to see how people who are identified as creeps are often viewed, sometimes with horror and sometimes with sympathy. After all, who among us hasn't felt a bit creepy at times? This podcast draws from stories and examples in my original book. In these episodes, we will explore different aspects of what it means to be creepy. A warning, don't be surprised if you're listening to this podcast. While for many of us, the specter of the creep can be threatening, it can also be a bit exciting. Exciting perhaps in the possibility of threat. Yes, we get creeped out, but we are also fascinated by creeps perhaps in part because we all sense the potential inside ourselves to be creepy. Part 5 Hot and humid, surprisingly, when I land at the Gulfport International Airport in June 2014 to visit my mother. Every summer, I've spent about two weeks with her. She's 70, still works, remains in decent health, perhaps too ornery and spirited to slow down, though I can tell she wants to. But her Cajun blood runs warm, and since my father passed about a decade ago in the awful aftermath of Katrina, she's found new energies and interests in her life after caretaking. I'm happy for her. She's a bit alone at times in her small retirement home on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, having fled the city that care forgot some years ago, but close enough to my sister and her family not to feel lonely. Still, I know she misses her siblings. Coming from a family of eight, there are only three of them left. And southern Mississippi, well, it just isn't home. So I'm not surprised that she asked this summer to drive a bit over 300 miles clear across Louisiana to visit her remaining older sister and younger brother, in far west Louisiana, near Lake Charles, Cajun country. My aunt, uncle, and cousins live, well, if not exactly in the bayous, pretty damn close to them. They've made their homes and trailers, some of them building houses in the sticky, wet heat, many of them working on the oil rigs in the Gulf and in neighboring Texas, all of them trying to get together as often as they can for family time, large gatherings of generally good cheer, drinking, and gossip. My cousins prepared us just such a get-together to celebrate our visit. Smoked meats and barbecued chicken and dewy sausage, boiled crawfish and boudin, the white sausage that Cajuns love. We arrived one evening and ate our way through the next day as 20, 30 people stopped by for food and fellowship. I was glad to see my cousins. I hadn't known many of them as a child. Visits with my mother's large family were infrequent. In their early 20s, my mother and her brother, Glenn, had moved away from Cajun country to try out life in the big city, New Orleans, where they both stayed and made their lives and where my mother had me and my sisters. In early adulthood, they had relied on each other and a change of venue to remake their lives. 
both something of black sheep, he was gay, she a little too loud for a woman, both wanting to get away from an alcoholic and at times abusive father. Brighter lights beckoned. As children, my sister and I saw a lot of my uncle, but my mother's other siblings and their children were hundreds of miles away, so my sisters and I got to know them only intermittently. It was only in the aftermath of Katrina that I connected with them, in very moving ways. I'd flown down to stay with my mother and father, who was soon to pass, as they evacuated from the Mississippi Gulf Coast to Lake Charles. In those weeks, especially after my father's death, his body just couldn't stand the strain of the evacuation, having lived with Parkinson's for well over a decade. More on that later. I got to know this part of the family, their strength, their generosity, their care for one another. Good people. They were kind to my mother in her time of loss, sheltering her and grieving with her. I remain in their debt. This visit, nearly a decade later, was a chance to reconnect, but also to grieve anew, as one of my aunts had just passed about seven months previously. Aunt Put, we called her. Like my mother, a feisty character larger than life. She'd been the postmistress in her community, and she hated the word postmistress. She was the postmaster. I felt for my cousin's loss, even as I felt estranged still. This particular aunt disapproving of homosexuality. So this gathering both celebrated our reunion and marked the transitions of time through which we all try to make our lives. That marking took a particular form as my mother, uncle, aunt, and their family sat around my cousin's kitchen island, sifting through hundreds and hundreds of photographs that my aunt had taken and collected. There may have been a thousand pictures, boxes of them. My cousins wanted to label them, calling on my mother's generation to identify people they didn't know. So in between bouts of eating slow cooked and spicy food, everyone sifted through the photographs, some 80 years old, even scrutinizing the past and remembering lives lived and lost. Some faces and scenes remained opaque to memory, but many others evoked fondness and commiseration and a couple of them, a sense of the damage wrought by people on each other, even people who love one another. Several were pictures of family members in uniform from World War II or the Korean War. Some were on oil rigs. Many were from family reunions. We organized the pictures primarily by closest association with my aunts and uncles. Eight large plastic baggies slowly accumulated the networks of relations, sorting memories through family ties, blood connections, and miscellaneous friendships. At one point, a few of my relatives turned to me with a baggie full of photos of my uncle, Glenn, the one who had moved with my mother to New Orleans early in their adulthoods. With a baggie was a death book, the bound volume that guests at a wake sign so the family can have a memento of who mourned with them. My uncle, the one I'd known the best through sheer proximity to us in New Orleans, had died of multiple myeloma cancer when I was a sophomore in high school. 
My cousin, whose house hosted the gathering and whose mother had passed a half year ago and who was organizing the event, said that I should take the book and whatever pictures I wanted. Others around the table agreed, shaking their heads somberly. This seemed right. I had known him, after all, in ways I hadn't known anyone else in my mother's family. Glenn was also, like me, gay. In the moments after this gifting, I felt a welter of emotions. Part of me was extraordinarily touched by the gesture. It was such a thoughtful recognition of my past relationship with my uncle. Another part of me, though, felt that this handing off to me of his death book and photos was a simultaneous acknowledgement and disavowal of our shared queerness. The identity was recognized, but the gift also seemed to say, this is your thing. It really belongs to you, not us. Perhaps the fact that only one, only one of my cousins asked me about Mac, my husband and partner of nearly two decades, prompted me to feel that my queerness, along with Glenn's, was being both evoked and dismissed at the same time. We were family, but also somehow not. Indeed, Glenn had left rural Louisiana, not finding it possible to make a life there as a gay man. I, in my own turn, had left Louisiana behind as well. We had both become outsiders to our families of origin, our shared extended family, not exactly throwing us out, as is the case with many other queers, but still not fully comfortable with us either. We had both been raised to understand our queerness as a problem, even damning to our eternal souls. At best, it was socially shameful, maybe even creepy. At worst, an ungodly disgrace. And while my relatives might indulge a familial sense that we are their queers, we are still queers. At the reunion, I walked into a room where distant cousins were talking about the freaks they'd seen on a recent trip to San Francisco. Everyone quickly shut up, embarrassed, surely, and not wanting to offend, but also annoyed that I'd interrupted their bonding. To be sure, at this point in my life, late 40s, comfortable with myself and largely at ease in my queer flesh, I have fewer and fewer family-oriented resentments. But I also know that I had to leave. Like my uncle, I needed, and need still, a different set of relations. As kids, my sister and I thought nothing of Uncle Glenn coming over to visit with his partner, Michael. They were just Glenn and Michael bringing beignets to eat on Sunday mornings. Other times, we'd visit them at their home in the French Quarter, an amazing shotgun where they had dinner parties, a bedroom ceiling draped with sheets and white Christmas lights like a fairyland, a back garden for drinking wine, a stereo tinkling out Tomita's synthesized classics. Aesthetic culture was important to them. 
I connected with my uncle through classical music and reading mostly fantasy, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. When I was eight, Uncle Glenn took me to see Fantasia, and that experience alone probably did more to shape my future interest in the fantastical and the power of the imagination, fine music and animation, interests that abide with me, sustain me, and in so many ways direct my ongoing investments personally and professionally to this day. One Halloween, they brought a stunning black costume for me, headpiece and all, literally a set of drapes that wrapped around my body, inlaid with little bits of mirror. I wanted to be Darth Vader, but looked instead like an evil drag queen, glorious in my gowns. <laughs> my parents wouldn't let me wear it. It was too over the top, too creepy. But to this day, I thrill to my uncle and his partner's boldness, their audacity, their sheer queer fabulousness. I loved them, both of them. For Glenn's funeral, I would compose and play an elegy on the organ. But childhood ends, and it ended for me abruptly with the hurt look on my uncle's face when I told a homophobic story that I had heard in school one day and late October. I was a ninth grader at the local Catholic boys' school where my mother later hoped I'd one day return to teach, buying a home down the road from their house, just like some of her siblings' children did to stay close to their parents. The health teacher had told us about a friend of his who worked in the emergency room of a local hospital about, about the faggots who would come in at night having stuck things up their asses. Once, as the teacher's friend probed a guy's rectum, he saw a light looking back at him, a flashlight that the queer had stuck up his rear to pleasure himself. We boys laughed, squirming in our hard seats with titillated horror. I shared the story, and, and my uncle flew into a rage as he sewed our Halloween costumes that year. Already dying of cancer, he'd be dead within a half year. He rightly shouted that he didn't need to know about other people's problems, having some of his own. My mother took me aside later and said, don't you know he's one of them? I knew immediately what she was talking about. I'd had no idea consciously. Part of me wants to feel shame about this story. And as I, and as I tell it now, I, stumble over my words. I want to feel that I hurt a fellow traveler, my own uncle, even if I didn't know it at the time. But at 13, I was starting to figure out how to pleasure myself, but I hadn't quite yet connected the varieties of pleasure to particular identities, to my own emerging queer identity. So the story about the flashlight seemed, well, funny. This guy sticking a flashlight up his ass. That's funny to a 13-year-old boy. It's not sexual, or at least it wasn't really sexual to me at the time. But the teacher, <laughs> the teacher, may he rot in hell, I still tell myself, he was old enough to link the practice with an identity. I see now that he was training us 
You do shit like this and you're an object of scorn, deserving humiliating laughter at best, or even disciplining violence. Isn't the telling of this story to a room full of 13-year-old boys what's really creepy here? I lost something that day in innocence, surely, and I began feeling the workings of social power in my own body, vectoring through the joke and rebounding on me in self-doubt and anxiety. I had offended, but my uncle was already himself in his sexuality offensive. I just hadn't known it. Now, now I did, and, and I realized that I might be an offender as well if I didn't watch out. And here, one strain of this narrative ends. Later that same school year, in just a few months, my uncle was dead, shortly after Mardi Gras. I remember my mother going to pick him up in the French Quarter on Mardi Gras night because he had been abandoned by friends who wanted to go partying. He was just too weak. And she brought him home and led him to bed. He stopped by my room where I was just starting to listen to Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. He asked if he could listen for a moment. It was our last meaningful exchange. Or perhaps not. The dead often stay with us. And while it took me well over another decade to come out, I thought of my uncle all the time. I still do. But mostly what I think about is how my life might have been different had he survived. What would my adolescence have been like with him in it? Would it have been easier to come out? Or would it have been harder? Would I have felt the need to distance myself from him in order to protect myself? Or might I have come out much earlier? Although he was taken out of my life so early, my uncle haunted me in both good and bad ways for a long time. For my family, he became the cautionary tale. Look what happens to those poor queers dead so young. He was only 41. And some even speculated and do so to this day that his cancer might have been a mistaken diagnosis for AIDS. You don't want to be like him. Such words resonated with the hostility of the health teacher. And I sometimes vow to myself not to be like my uncle. And yet, his fabulous home and the French Quarter, his love of music and costuming, his delight in food, his boldness in bringing over his lover, those were also all part of my life, gesturing, pointing, orienting me towards paths beyond the cautionary, beyond the safe routes. As such, they formed part of an alternative genealogy, one that lay alongside, however hidden at times, the genealogical imperative that I satisfy certain familial demands and obligations, that, that I buy a home near my family, get married, get to work, and take care of my parents as they once took care of me. I will never know what my uncle's presence might have made possible or imaginable had he survived but I am nonetheless left with those foreclosed upon possibilities, those unknowable trajectories. Indeed, what seems important to me now is marking both the place in my life that my uncle occupied while he was alive 
and marking what his absence throughout my adolescence actually did. I could have had a gay guy, a gay dad in my uncle. In this light, what my uncle's survival might have meant for me was was a local modeling of a working-class queer man making queerness livable, if not, in fact, absolutely fabulous. What's at stake here is proximity. And what his death meant for me was a foreclosing of possibilities, at least possibilities for imagining a queer life in New Orleans. That foreclosing meant that I stayed in an intensely homophobic environment until I could leave. I knew no other adult who was gay or lesbian for the remainder of my time in Louisiana, where I remained until I was 25. Not one, not one teacher, not one supervisor, certainly not a member of any church I attended. Looking back, I can't blame them. What a toxic place and time to be queer. And while I met some other young men, just a handful, they were often like me, grappling with the damaging effects of homophobia on their own lives. So they really couldn't help me any more than they could help themselves. We tried. <laughs> we tried at times. But it wasn't enough. And it certainly wasn't enough to prevent me from wondering in my early 20s if my own homoerotic feelings might have stemmed from my uncle, not genetically, but because he may have sexually abused me as a child. I slowly began to build this narrative of his own creepiness, how he was very likely a sexual predator and that everything wrong with my life, I could lay at his feet. I fetishized particular memories to piece this story together. Once, I must have been maybe four or five, my uncle visiting us, my mother cooking in the kitchen, me cavorting around in my briefs. My uncle dropped an ice cube down the back of my tidy whities and I remember screaming with outraged delight, but, but in my 20s, such a memory became a piece and a larger puzzle of predation and abuse. I couldn't remember anything else, but... Isn't the failure to remember itself a clue to possible abuse? I would tell myself. I'd been reading Freud and thought I knew all about repression. When, shortly before I got married to a woman, I, I broke down from the stress of it all and sobbed in my parents' kitchen. My mother, she didn't know what was going on, but my father said, in words I think I can recall perfectly, I think I know what's wrong. You're a homosexual. I stopped crying and <laughs> I actually laughed. My reply haunts me to this day. Well, you're partly right. I, I think Uncle Glenn abused me. I spelled out my concocted story and my parents seemed all too eager to corroborate. There was that time that Glenn had taken me to see Fantasia so my parents could go out for the evening alone. Again, I must have been barely five or six. I vaguely recalled the film, not much else. After the movie, I'd apparently asked to call home and begged my parents to come and get me. They didn't, still enjoying some time alone. And that must have been when it had occurred. One of the instances of abuse. Surely my pleas to go home signaled a distress that my parents couldn't read, trusting Glenn as they did. If they'd only known what a real creep he was. But 
But what was there to know? Looking back on all of this, <laughs> I feel like a real creep myself. For I was all too willing to blame my uncle for my, for my own desires. And what's worse, understand them as the product of a sexual abuse that never occurred. Then I consider that, that what's truly creepy is the extent to which my surrounding culture, everything in it from church to school to family to peers, it all had made such a perverse interpretation of my feelings, not just a likely story, but one that I and others bent over backwards to concoct, despite all real evidence to the contrary. It's appalling. And as I write this, I'm scratching an itch on my on my arm until it bleeds. I've never been a cutter, but this little act of self-harm is my empathy for those who do cut. I'm punishing myself for the awfulness inflicted on me, for the awfulness I in turn thought of others, like my own uncle. I'm revealing the scar deep down. You have been listening to Creep, the podcast. You can find the original book, Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology, at its publisher's website, punctumbooks.com. For more information about this podcast and other books related to Creep, check out www.thecreeptrilogy.com. This podcast is directed and produced by Hai Truong. It is narrated by me, Jonathan Alexander. Thank you for listening.